1: Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Remember, if you do invest in any publicly traded concern, you do so at your own risk. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin.
2: Join me now for a conversation with the president of Gold Source Mines, Giannis Gold GoldSource trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol GXS.V. GoldSource is a junior mining company about to produce gold in English-speaking Guyana bordering the Caribbean in South America. I have to ask you, Giannis, why should people invest in the sector? And more specifically, consider investing in gold source mines.
3: I would like to say for three reasons. Number one is the team. We have assembled a great team with tremendous experience, management and board of directors, more than 200 years of combined experience in the mining industry, ranging from discoveries of deposits, but most importantly, development of deposits into mines economic mines and production. So on top of that, if you add the operating team in Guyana, which has experience from past operators, we have assembled a great team and that's a recipe for success. Number two point is the quality of the asset. Here we are talking about a gold mine, a deposit that is very close to infrastructure. So. We're only 8 kilometers from a close community where we draw upon our workforce. And on top of that, the easiness of extraction of gold. We talk about mining 1.5 grams per tonne gold on surface, on a soft rock. So this management specifically has experience in running this type of development projects of, uh, you know, kind of with easy extraction, which is translated to low operating costs. And that's extremely important for any investor to understand. Here we talk, and we still have to prove it obviously, but out of the independent compliant engineering studies to about $480 per ounce of production in terms of cash costs, only in Guyana. This will put us in the lowest quartile of the market. And the third and most important th- is the timing. We are just commissioning the mine. Effectively, we initiated production. This is a phase where you try now your development We complete construction at the end of January. Gold production is imminent in the coming couple of weeks and full commercial production sometime in March. So there's no better timing for somebody to invest in that kind of setup.
2: I'm sure there are those that may question the viability of operating in South America. What is the risk in Guyana?
3: Yeah, Guyana is the only English-speaking country in South America, so therefore I wouldn't classify it as Latin America. Effectively, it's a part of Commonwealth, it's a Caribbean state located in South America, an ex-British colony, people speaking English with robust law that is based on British and American standards and a secular democracy that is stable. The most important part of the GDP of the country in terms of economic activity comes from the extraction of or the resource sector mining gold and bauxite oil and gas and forestry so this is a supportive regime with very friendly people in a good uh, law environment where is protection of foreign investment so as gold Source mines we operate there for about 6 years now but uh, personally i used to be with bhp billiton so i operate in guyana for more than 16 years
2: You, of course, are aligned as a sister company of another sponsor of this program, Silvercrest Metals, sharing in large part their management team. Tell us why you decided to join this team
3: because of the quality of the team and and the breadth they have been there they have done it in the past in a couple of occasions and they try to do it again under the new setup at uh, Silvercrest Metals but it's a great team of engineers and people that are bootstrapped hands on the ground and extremely cautious with every dollar so that combined with my philosophy of the phase development approach so Eric Fier is the COO of Golsos Mines he's the president of Silvercrest Metals this is mainly the main relationship Relationship, but the whole management of Silvercrest is part of the management of Gold source. Then we have some additional people. The people um, this kind of development companies, I would say is the essence and the heart of any project. When you want to go ahead, You have to trust your team, and this is a team to be trusted.
2: With the fact that you are basically heading into production, it must be very satisfying for you.
3: Yeah, there is a sense of accomplishment, obviously, given the conditions at the market at the moment for the commodities industry. And no doubt Goldschuss has been seen as a jewel the feedback I get out of peer presidents and other friends in other companies. We see that we have done a lot of things in the last two years. I believe that trust has been built from the point of view that whatever we said two years ago when We merged the two companies, and we put the domino effect started at that time, I would say. Whatever we promised, we did. And we did it on time and on budget, and that's very big for this industry.
2: I've been speaking with Yanis Sitos, the president of Gold Source Mines, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol GXS. Listen to this segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com.
1: Did you hear something worth repeating? Find all segments of this program on our website, ellismartinreport.com.
2: High-quality but undervalued mining stocks are finally starting to attract the attention of investors. Get the latest news and resource stock investment opportunities with a subscription to Resource World magazine. Published six times a year, Resource World features in-depth articles on mineral area plays, commodities of interest, and valuable investment insights by highly qualified market analysts, geologists, and mining journalists. Go to resourceworld.com to find out more. Join me for a conversation with Dr. Brandt Thompson. See CEO and President of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated, trading as ONCY on the OTCQX and ONC on the TSX. Oncolytics Biotech is a biotechnology company focused on the development of oncolytic viruses as potential therapeutics for use in a broad range of cancers. The company is conducting clinical studies using reolysin, its proprietary formulation of the human reovirus, and some of the most prevalent forms of the disease, including lung, colorectal, and pancreatic cancers. Brad, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Al. You just released some news announcing first patients treated in a phase 1b study in advanced pancreatic cancer. Now, these patients have advanced pancreatic cancer. We've discussed that Reolysin has been designed to uh, treat advanced cases. What's significant about this particular study and what can we look forward to in the future?
4: Well, this is the first time that we've combined Reolysin, which is our product based on a, you know a live virus, and combining it with one of the new class of drugs that are called checkpoint inhibitors. And what checkpoint inhibitors do is basically un Blind or, or open the eyes of your immune system to tumors. Tumors are very effective at camouflaging themselves from the immune system. These new drugs actually sort of take that away and it lets the immune system see a tumor again and help kill it. What realicin does is actually enhances the activities of these new drugs, these checkpoint inhibitors. And certainly we're very excited about the prospects um, now treating patients with realicin and them combined together for the first time. And so we treated our first few patients down in San Antonio in Texas. And uh, again, because it's pancreatic cancer, it raises the ante because pancreatic cancer outcomes are so poor. And so we're all basically holding our breath waiting to see what the first results from this clinical study are, which will come quite quickly.
2: So for all stages, as I understand with regard to pancreatic cancer, it's pretty near fatal. So this sort of study is extremely important, isn't it?
4: Pancreatic cancer is just something you don't want to ever say to a patient. I mean, it's just a terrible debilitating disease that leads to death almost inevitably. And I mean, there's been some advances in putting off the disease for a while, but we're talking a while, we're talking months. And I think the entire industry is waiting for the next big leap forward and I think using some kind of immune combination therapy of some form is going to be the case where we actually make a difference there instead of saying to somebody instead of dying in six months you're going to die in nine months which is hugely valuable I mean three extra months means a lot to people so that next milestone it's the next birthday it's the next anniversary it means something to people to even people go oh, what's three months well three months is really important but wouldn't it be nice to say to a patient now you're not going to have six months you're going to live for three years or longer or or the dream, you know, say to a pancreatic cancer patient, you're cured occasionally. That's really where we're headed with this area. And so the first time to our understanding that people are doing combined immune therapy in pancreatic cancer patients, I think this is going to attract a lot of attention from a lot of people and most importantly, hopefully from the patient's perspective.
2: When might we hear something either way about this particular study?
4: I would think that the majority of patients should be enrolled sometime this year, but we'll actually start to get data out before that. And that's one of the also, exciting things about doing work with immune therapies is that there's all these kind of markers and special assays that you can do and take a look at the patient. They can tell you if the actual this immune effect is actually happening long before you actually find out if they live longer. So you will have a very good sense, hopefully not too distant future this year, about how it's working. And again, that's, that's exciting. I mean, I'm used to waiting years, sometimes five, six, seven years to see if a therapy is working. And to say that we started in the calendar year and actually have information that same calendar year is pretty, pretty exciting.
2: So from an investment point of view, let's talk dollars and cents for a moment. Of course, there's enormous value for a pancreatic cancer patient to live another three months or six months or a year or perhaps another five or 10 years and beyond. That would be a game changer. What kind of effect would this have potentially on your company financially if they're success in this area. Can we talk about
4: that? The real value adders in biotechnology, especially in oncology, is adding lifespan to patients. I mean, if we can demonstrate that there's a lifespan benefit to patients using real life, and that is one of the major sort of value drivers in biotechnology companies that look at oncology, and that event in itself is usually the signature event in a big change in valuation in companies. And so it's very important for us to be able to demonstrate that to our patients and to our shareholders.
2: At this time, with everything that you have going on with regard to your company, you are doing research on several manifestations of cancer. Why do you believe that this particular company, along with Others in the sector that are doing great research and and having success are are so potentially undervalued.
4: Well, it's a general phenomenon in biotechnology that you seem to have a disconnect with what value is. Some companies, and good for them, that seem to have outrageous valuations on um, very little information. But there's a reason for that. I think it's because the message and the story is focused, and it's relatively simple. And because it's focused like that, then people give them credit for that, and good for them good for those companies and good for the prospects for going forward. When you look at the commonality of companies that seem to be, quote, undervalued, there does tend to be, it's usually a more complicated discussion and it's a more complicated picture. Data might be a little more textured or whatever you want to call it. And that makes it difficult for people to put their finger on what the real value is underneath. And I think those companies, and I think that includes us, tend to be valued at less. And so it's really our challenge and our job to try to focus people on the kind of core elements of what we're doing. And the expectation is is that when you get to that point, then you will see evaluation correction just by communicating that in an appropriate way.
2: Well, it's not good enough, and I've always said this to people I know that are involved in in running public companies, it's not good enough to be doing your job with the business. Of course, that's fantastic. You need a legitimate business to be a public company and, and to go out and ask for money. But it's important to draw attention to the company and let everybody know what you're doing. If you've got a potential solution for cancer, in fact, us solution for cancer it doesn't do any good if nobody knows about it with regard to investing in the company you're on the road a lot making sure that people learn about your company
4: the whole communicating with your shareholder base and with potential new shareholders is the primary job of public company CEOs and it's no different in biotechnology than it is in other industries i think where the difference in biotechnology is is that our message virtually changes every week as you can get more information and whatever you have to incorporate that in it's critical that you go out and you communicate face-to-face with your investing group or whatever audience or whatever you want to call it. And that's what we do. And that's what I do. It's easy in a lot of ways because what we do is so exciting. And it's difficult in a way because it does require a lot of time and energy to do that. But it's an absolutely essential core role of biotech publicly traded CEO.
2: Are you getting any kind of feedback from some of the people that you've been treating over the years, You've over 1,100 to date?
4: You know, it's interesting, out of every study, we're not supposed to know who the patients are in studies as a company. I mean, that's sort of a basic tenet of the business. But usually, at some point when studies are done, almost every one of our studies, a patient will contact us. A patient will go, hey, I was on your X study, and hey, I'm still here. And so you, you get face-to-face contact with the patients for the first time, and usually after when the study is, after it's completed. It's interesting, almost on every study that we have, we have at least one, sometimes a number of very long-term survivors, and this goes back to our very original studies. It is an absolute delight when I, sometimes my yearly phone calls or yearly visits, they usually show up out of the blue in my office. And we sit down and I'm looking at this person that was supposed to be dead, you know, five or ten years ago, and they're fine. That is the best, best Present the best day of my life every year, and I get that over and over again. And it's it's absolutely wonderful to have that kind of contact. The site number and the patient number, so I'll be like 13-107B or something like that, and then you get this personalized face-to-face interaction with somebody who's apparently derived benefit from your product. It's really an amazing experience. I
2: imagine it provides a, a lot of motivation for you when you're out in the road, and also for your your management team. Everybody knows that they're affecting lives of people that have been afflicted, as well as their extended families and friends. You're actually uh, bringing joy to people that you most likely have no idea who they are.
4: Is the very integral part of why people work in companies like ours to have that kind of feedback and kind of support. Honestly, I mean, we're a big industry looking at cancer research and from a company perspective, because I can't speak of it anywhere else. Every company I know, there's a strong element of that's why people are there. We're here to get a product out. Yes, we're here to get a return to our shareholders. Yes, we're all those things with the business side. Deep underneath that is the, wow, we're helping people out. And you know, when my staff and my colleagues get access to that kind of information, you can just see what it does to them. The spring is back in their step and the joy is in their life. That is, that is what makes their day. It's a very strong undercurrent in our industry, both the biotech companies and the big pharma companies. I have to say my big pharma colleagues are just like us. We get a kick out of helping people. It's coincidental in a nice way that it's also good for our businesses.
2: Well, Brad, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. I look forward to another conversation in the very near future. Thanks so much for joining us again today on the program.
4: Thank you very much, Ellis. I've been speaking with Dr.
2: Brad Thompson, CEO and President of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated, trading as ONCY on the OTCQX. Listen to the segment again on our website or download the entire Ellis Martin report on iTunes. Remember, all of the companies you're hearing about today have paid
1: us for the opportunity to be reviewed by you on this program. Do your own research before investing in anything mentioned here. Start by visiting our website, com.
2: I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation now with newsletter writer, analyst, and investor Dudley Baker. He's the editor of both com and CommonStockWarrants.com. When I want to talk about precious metals and mining stocks, Dudley is one that I turn to for opinion. Dudley, welcome back to the program. How did you prepare yourself for this possible sustained upturn that we are seeing in the precious metals sector?
5: basically hanging on because you know I think in our gut all of us realize that this pain has to end and nobody had the holy grail of when and I'm sure we did not anticipate the, the major explosion that we've had in the markets the last uh, couple of weeks. It's been staggering to the upside which is such a welcome relief. The pain's been incredible and it's just a matter of staying on board here. Assuming the storm is over which I think it, it truly is I think we can almost say uh, you know bye bye to you know, $900 gold, $1,000 gold. I think that's uh, could have happened really, really easy. I think what we've just seen, we put that exclamation point on that and I think we can forget that one. It's upward and onward.
2: Well, we came pretty close and it was a buying opportunity back then. I'm sure you picked up a few stocks during the implosion, the downturn, and that is a strategy that you've been employing for years. When no one else is looking, it's time to collect.
5: It's always a matter of revaluating your portfolio all the time. And there's always stocks that probably could be sold based on uh, negative news or some you don't like and other ones that are looking good it's a rotation a little bit I think I've net net done a pretty good job of uh, rotating into some that I think are, are really going to be the winners in this next uh, big up cycle. We got so close to that 1,000 it's almost like I was preparing all my subscribers I said this is a given we've got to hit a 1,000 and so we went to what like 1041 or 1042 on the low side and uh, it's kind of a sloppy looking chart but I think everybody was sitting there just anticipating that thousand so bad that it just did not happen. It is really interesting, and precious metals are playing off of all this total lack of faith in in the Federal Reserve here at the moment to control the economies, really, of the whole world, I guess. So it's uh, going to be interesting to see how this plays out.
2: Do you think it's a parabolic upturn, much like what we saw in 2011? We've got to just
5: cool off here a little bit. Obviously, it's gone It's gone so far, so fast. I'm, I'm looking as we speak, a chart of the HUI, the Gold Bugs Index. We went down and kissed 100 on this index through in the middle of January. So we're only like a month into this, and now we closed at 163. So let's just round it off and say, hell, that's 63% that we've come up in one month. And this is, of course, stacked with more of the producing uh, gold companies. But that's a staggering move. That's just straight up parabolic, almost like the goal. We're due for consolidation. We know that. And I would like to think that what's going to happen is that even on the HUI, we're looking at the 200-day moving average coming across here at almost 130, 129, actually. We could back off 30, and we're still uh, right there above the 200-day moving average. So it's only going to be natural that we've we've got to have a little bit of cooling off period here and regroup and then get this next wave underway. I had lunch with two of the buddies that are all involved in the gold market as well. One of them subscribes to an analyst, and I said, man, you still subscribe to this guy? I mean, this guy was been wrong like forever, you know? And he said, yeah, yeah, I'm hanging with this guy. So Bill, what's, what's this guy saying right now? He says, by the end of April, think about this, end of April, he sees gold at 2,000. Now I said, what? And of course, this was a couple of weeks ago, now, right now, we see this parabolic spike up and the total lack of the faith in the Fed to control these things, the monetary policy. And so anything is possible right now. This whole world is getting turned upside down and politics, the potential for war and everything is going on at the moment. It is satisfying to us gold bugs to see gold really coming back into play here. And I think it's getting on everybody's horizon and truly anything is possible, I think, to the upside. You know, we just don't I'm going to go just straight up parabolic. I mean, we got to have time for little old stocks to, uh, you know, participate as well. So much of my portfolio is in the lower price shares. Even if they've got production, they may be down selling at 10, 20, 30 cents. I like to think all of these are going to be 10 baggers or more, but it's probably not going to happen overnight. So we need a nice sustained move up. I'm always thinking over a couple of years, not not a couple of months.
2: So your advice would be to sit back for a bit before we pour any major cash into some of these juniors, right? I'd
5: say yes, and I'd say no. You know, there's some that are on my radar screen that still, they've moved up, but they've moved up very little. You know, they they may have come up from you know, say, 18 cents to 25 cents. But when we get this little consolidation, I'd say if if anybody's that's listening to this, what I'm looking to do as well is that knowing that we have to consolidate right here in front of us. Now, whether this means for a few weeks or, or a month or so or whatever and down to whatever level, I would like to think that gold's going to where we close, what in the 1230 range. With a little luck, we're going to hold it you know between 1175 and 1200. But we kind of need to go flat, sideways, whatever. And probably some of these little uh, shares are going to back off a little bit. And I would think in this coming pullback. This is when we need to be stepping in, you know, with a lot more confidence right now to play this game. I'm looking as well in all the news and of course a lot of my subscribers are looking for stock warrants that may be trading. Those warrants that are out there that have multiple years of remaining life are going to be great performers here if we kind of get the move up that we're looking for in the metals. And of course, we've had several companies that have announced acquisitions, mergers, that they will be having some stock warrants. So I see several new stock warrants coming on the horizon in the precious metal sector, and so uh, giving us a lot more choices of, of opportunities.
2: Explain how warrants work and how you can profit from them.
5: A stock warrant, it's giving you the right but not the obligation to buy the underlying stock at a specific price and then, of course, expires on a specific date in the future. So the definition is very, very similar to options, call options. The deal with the stock warrants, a lot of times, they may have a three-year life or a five-year life as opposed to you know less than a year with the uh, call options. So you've got a lot more time, and especially in this crazy market that we're in, you really need this additional time. And it's all about looking for the upside I leverage i always in, in all of our calculations what if the price of the common stock doubles triples quadruples what will the stock warrant do and it's just a mathematical calculation basically the valuation i put on it is i, I keep it at 100 percent if the common stock doubles what will the warrant do i make a an assessment every week and i say okay the warrant is either fairly valued or it's overvalued or it's undervalued a lot of these warrants we've got some of the new ones coming out with five-year life so it's like that's a pretty cool opportunity thinking about where gold could go and it's just not focused on the next few months but over the next few years you know with everything that's going to be taking place and you just think gosh you, if we do make a run to 2,000 takes out the old high I mean that could really just be game on you know from some of those guys in the past, you know, looking for 5,000 gold. So, I mean, it's outrageous to think, but any producer out there today that's still in business, still got cash flow, man, you just think of all of that additional cash flow going to the bottom line with the higher metal prices. It's staggering to think the potential.
2: How many companies are you currently following, Dudley? Oh man, that's
5: a good question. Thank you.
2: I got a monster list. You know, I've just got
5: companies on my radar screen, but I mean, I own—got to think it's thirty or forty different ones. Now, you know, I've got a few that are in the marijuana space as well, so it's—it's it's not all one hundred percent just in precious metals. And then I've got a few companies that are in what we call blank check companies, and that's just a, a really growing sector here. There's, gosh, there must be ten to fifteen blank check companies. Explain. What is a blank check? i wish you and i had the connections to pull one of these babies off i mean the blank check company starts with a savvy group of individuals obviously well connected with good track records these guys are raising anywhere from 50 million i know i've seen some over 400 million and what it is these guys are raising serious money and they're going to use this money to look for opportunities. Well, wouldn't you love somebody to give us $400 million else to go look for opportunities? I mean, how cool is that? It's really interesting. A little bit you can kind of gauge if you dig through all of the SEC and, and CEDAR filings. There's a few in Canada, but most of these blank check companies are U.S. companies. If you dig through the SEC filings, you can find out some of the, the principal's background as to what sectors that they may be looking for acquisitions, whether that's in the restaurant area or the gaming area or real estate. And I own just a few of these. I've kind of I've cherry-picked a couple of them that I think have got some good opportunities. Now, the reason I brought up blind check companies is because with every offering raising the money here for Point check company, there is a stock warrant. So they're sold as a unit for like 45 days, the stock warrant starts to trade as well. What history has shown me in the face of some of these acquisitions, once a company does make an acquisition, sometimes the stock The value explodes upwards, and of course the stock warrant goes with it, giving you five to ten multiple on the stock warrant. It's interesting opportunities. I'm just amazed at how many of the blank check companies are out there and how much money is being raised by these guys. I mean, it's it's a staggering amount of money, so it's an intriguing sector. My personal interest is they all have stock warrants. Minimum of a five-year life, and they dangle a carrot that actually the five years does not even start to run until they make an acquisition. So actually that, that warrant could end up having a six, seven year trading life. Pretty interesting uh, sector there as well.
2: I've been speaking with Dudley Baker of JuniorMiningNews.com and CommonStockWarrants.com. Listen to the segment again on the homepage of our website, EllisMartReport.com, and download the entire EllisMart Report on iTunes or TuneIn Radio. Join me now for a conversation with analyst, investor, and newsletter writer, David Morgan. His website is themorganreport.com. And as we often do, today we'll discuss recent developments in the gold and silver markets. David, welcome back to the program. Oh, well, it's great to be back. And I want to thank you. I recently took advantage of a alert that automatically uh, became available, popped up on my screen. I want to thank you for that just before you took your latest trip. Your software works when you're not even around anywhere. Let's clue our audience in about the alert service related to uh, the Morgan Report for those that are not subscribers right now.
6: Sure, members of the website. My Webmaster wrote a uh, widget or software for a widget that's an alert system. So whenever I have something that I'm doing like a trade that I put on here recently it's working out very well, or in a company alert, we just sent one of those out as well. It's kind of saves the member a little bit of hassle. I mean, it pops up on their screen so they can see it. This is a trade that I did just before I popped on an airplane. In fact, I actually placed the order when I was at the airport, but I outlined what I was doing before I left the office. So it's something that you know we provide. I don't know how many in the industry do this, and I don't know how many industry do what I do, which means that I do both, you know, the commodity side or the trading side and the investing side, I look at both the commodity side and also the equity side. Most newsletter writers look at the equity side only, Couldn't we do both.
2: Clearly, there's a lot going on in the market, and I'm sure I'm not the first journalist to ask you this question. Are we in the big gold rush, silver rush that you've been speaking about for years now, that when finally everybody catches on, it's going to go crazy?
6: You know, I think we are. I, I want to elaborate on that answer. It's actually what we put out for our, our free list. Uh, you know, there's a lot of free information. We put out a, an e-letter every weekend. It's usually written by me, but there's contributors. I mean, both David and Chris and others contribute. And that was the question, you know, David, is this finally it? And I answered, I don't have it right in front of me, but I certainly remember what I wrote. And I basically said that, as far as I could tell, we're in. But I want to be careful because, you know, I'm one that uh, admits errors, and I call that 1817 low, that spike low, and that was right, it was correct, 14 months, and then of course we're, we broke through that, and we've been lower than that, and we still are. So I said that there are many, my associates, colleagues in the peer group, whatever you want to call it, but I think that there's one more low ahead of us. I don't, I think that the bottom was in November of last year, and I think it's gonna be it, time will tell. We have had such a nice, strong move up, and then again, this trade that I put on where the uh, members looked over my shoulder to see what I was doing has worked out quite well, and these are short-term situations, obviously. That can turn long. I mean, you know, nothing makes me happier than getting a trade position that lasts for you know six months. I mean, when I traded the breakout in silver in 2010-11, I got in at 19, rode it all the way to 48. I exited and entered one time during that whole run. So so those are the kind of moves you'd love to do. I don't think we're there on this particular move, although I do think we have probably a couple of months, maybe all the way in the summer, for more positive metal prices than negative. So, Ellis, the long answer is we're there. I mean, if we are going to a new low before the next move. I don't see it. I don't see how it can happen, but I can't rule it out totally.
2: When you spoke in previous years about the next bull market, you framed it as the last bull market. Is this the last one we're going to see?
6: Maybe I did. I think what I meant was that most markets go in three phases, and this goes back to the basic Elliott Wave theory, but you don't even have to know anything about Elliott Wave. But usually I'll step back and look at markets. They go from undervalued to fair valued to overvalued. But they're not a straight rocket ship from under value to overvalue. And in the process, you get a wave that goes undervalued to, you know, maybe fair value. And then there's a backing and filling, and then you get another move up, and then you get a big correction wave, and then you get what's called a third wave. And that's the one that's the biggest, the longest, and the most lucrative to people that understand markets. You can look at a stock market, you look at a commodity, you look at a particular stock. Does it happen 100% of the time? No, but it happens very, very often, especially on big markets. It's like the stock market generally or a commodities market. So we have ahead of us, I think, the biggest move into precious metals on a percentage basis probably ever. And if you look at the third wave or the last wave or the most productive wave or the most lucrative wave last time in gold, what you saw was the run up to like the $200 level and then the correction to 100. And, you know, if you bought it at 100 and watched it go to 200 and doubled your money and then held it all the way down to 100, you were pretty upset. Or another example might be you got in at, you know, the $150 level, watched it go to 200 and watched it go to 100 and pretty upset. You're, you, know, you have a paper loss. And, of course, it bottom. And then it went from 100 to 800 rather rapidly. And similar had a similar chart pattern. So that move from the 100 level to 800 level, almost 900 is 850, was significant. And if you caught most of that, you did very, very well. So that's what I'm talking about. This time, that, let's say, 8-fold move could be a 10 or 20-fold move. So if you took the breakout or you took the low, of, let's call it, hasn't been a 1,000, but if we did it at a 1,000, you did 10 back. Or you'd be looking at $10,000 gold. No, I'm not predicting 10,000. I mean, guys out there that have predicted 10, people have gone 20, 25, 30. I mean, I think 50,000's out there in the internet blogosphere. I'm not too concerned about what the final price is. I'm more wanting to give the idea to everyone that the biggest, longest, most lucrative part of the market is ahead of us. So if you take that as a gold uh, situation where you could go, let's say, tenfold, and you looked at silver, it, silver will probably up from gold two or three fold, meaning that instead of going up 10 in that example, again, I'm giving the idea, not the exactness, because no one knows the future, including yours truly. But if we went from silver and we went from, let's say, the call it $13 level, and you went up 10, you're at $130. And if you doubled that, so it's a 20 bagger, you're looking at 260 Now, does that mean we have to go to $260 an ounce of silver? No. No. What it means is. That one, both, again, both of these have tons of room to the upside. Secondly, these markets will go up with even the most ardent bulls not believing they're still going higher. But we had a taste of that already in gold just this week, where we saw almost a $60 move in gold in a day. I mean, we haven't had a day like that in gold in a long time. In fact, I have to go back to the charts and look from the you know 1970s through the peak in 1980 in January and see if there was a $60 day. I actually don't remember one, but I'm going from a pretty long-term memory. So Alice, the deal is this. It's underloved, it's undervalued, very few are in the market. Many that were in the market have given up. Many will not return. And some that are skeptical will get out and watch it run away from them. So going back to what I was talking about a moment ago, there were those that, let's say, bought gold at 150, watch it go to 200, it went to 100, and then as it went from 100 back to the 850 level, as it passed through the 150 level, they got out. And then when it went to the 200 level. Many thought that was a double top and, oh, that feel so grateful. They bought it at 200 and here it is again. They can sell for no loss. Well, there's a loss because of the interest value of money, but let's just say they felt good. They broke even. But how would you feel if you were, you know, convinced philosophically that gold was a good investment or a good hedge or insurance or whatever word you want to connotate with gold and you bought it at, let's say, near the $200 level and you watched it go to 100 and you got out at 200 and you were bragging to everybody how great it was you didn't take a loss in your gold position. And then in a matter of months, 800 how foolish would you feel? But this is what happens in markets. People get disgusted. They get fed up. They feel that they were right and the market was wrong. And so therefore, you know, when things start moving their direction and they feel relief, that psychological, ah, oh boy, finally it's back to this level and I'm even and I didn't lose anything. And these are psychological factors that are very difficult for a lot of people to overcome. But really, you have to look at the reason you own gold, and you have to have the right amount. And there is no set right amount for everybody, because everyone's different. I mean, you look at my friend Mike Maloney, he's basically all in. What I recommend for most people is about a 10% holding is probably sufficient for most people maybe 20 percent if you've really gotten bitten by the gold and silver bugs but more than that certainly you could and there are those i certainly know that are but that doesn't necessarily serve everybody the best so word of caution on you know what is the correct amount by the way just as an aside when you are a member of this with the website there is a booklet called you know how to use the morgan report we actually go through that kind of psychological thinking of hey i'm this age how much physical should i have how much stock should I have? What kind of stock should I be in? Should I be more in the top tier or the mid tier or the speculative section? How do I divide between silver and gold? I do an actual outline and it isn't a this is exactly what you should do but it's thought provoking enough that most people are very satisfied if they go through that and understand ah okay and it's basically geared for it's pretty much tailor made or it's individually defined as far as what your risk profile is like regardless of your age where you're set up in a position that serves you the best and there's nothing better than having a position even if it goes down that you're satisfied you made a good decision and you can sleep at night the people that over load and I used to get a lot of those calls that, oh I wish I read your stuff first or met you before or whatever because you know I put everything I had into this market and now it's going against me and I don't want to take a loss but I have to. I've got you know kids to feed or business to run or mortgages to make and those kind of calls really upset me because there's no reason for that to take place and, uh, and it does take place at times.
2: You know all of those questions I could ask you during this interview but I don't think I'm going to because I think the best thing to do is to go directly to themorganreport.com and do your own research and for our listeners to gravitate where they will and to engage themselves with you or Chris as they will. But I do have one question for you that I think I will ask, maybe a couple of questions. Can we have a gold rush, a silver rush, and a strong dollar at the same time?
6: Absolutely, it's possible. I mean, there's a strong argument out there, and Kevin of my colleagues that you know, gold moves opposite dollar. So you make a strong case for that, but it's not always true. The idea that I've tried to put out is that when there's doubt, when there's fear, when there's uncertainty, gold fills that. It's not necessarily an inflation hedge. Professor Jastrum proved that it does better as a deflation hedge. But let's just think of it what it really is. And I'd go along with Doug Casey. It's a crisis hedge. And if you look at Martin Armstrong, and I don't want. To put words in his mouth, but reading his stuff, you know, sort of like uh, governments can fail hedge. So hopefully I frame that correctly, but that's the way I read his work. So gold to me is not an inflection hedge or necessarily a deflation hedge. It's more of a crisis hedge or an uncertainty hedge. It's something that you can trust. Gold is a metal, and silver as well, but not to the level that gold is in today's society. If you go back in monetary history, you'd have a different answer, but let's just talk about the here and now. That even banks that poo-poo gold, the central banks have been net buyers of gold for several years now. Even though they hold their nose and pretend it's no good, Watch what they do, not what they say. So gold is a fail-safe investment. It's a, a it's something that's a bit of, it's like a touchstone. It's something that's always there and it always works. It always works at the price that you want it to, or does it always give you the value you think it deserves? The answer's no. But it's something that doesn't burn up. Paper money has burned up every time we've tried this fiat experiment. We haven't had one example where it just marched on majestically like gold has. This is the idea of gold from my perspective, which means you need to have a position in it you want to call it insurance fine I don't care I think really you're better served by having a metals portfolio which would include silver and gold as a minimum and if you're really sophisticated you could put in some other white metals and you could go into the stocks, you could go into ETFs or what have you. It's more than just a commodity. I had an interview with a very, very astute guy on the commodities exchange and he says it's just a commodity and we had a discussion around that. You know, neither one was like, Oh you're I'm right, you're wrong, or any of that. It was just like his perspective as a floor trader, a very bright guy. A lot of times in history it is a commodity, but there's other times in history where it's like the most important commodity because it serves its function as money and as Mike Maloney says it does an accounting gold does an accounting for all of the mis, malinvestment misallocation of capital bubbles all the let's say mistakes in quotation marks that are in the financial system and it rises to a level that it makes up for all of these errors and this is what happened in 1980. In fact, if you read one of my early articles called Engineering the Price of Gold, you'll see that we actually, in the United States, could have gone back on a gold standard at $400 an ounce gold. But as we all know, gold went to about 850. So we could have actually gone back to a full gold exchange standard at that time and been uh, solvent on a gold basis. Of course, no one was thinking in those terms except some of us nut jobs like myself. But if we had to do that again in today's dollars, I'd probably be north of 10 thousand in the gold price. Regardless, this is the time where you have to really be calm, take a deep breath, evaluate for yourself, educate yourself, and determine for your best interest what serves you best. I think a gold and silver position will serve you best, especially from this point forward.
2: Speaking of engineering the price of gold, don't you think it's in the interest of the banks right now if they continue and I'm just gonna I'm just gonna say it if they continue their suppression so that they can accumulate it at, at low prices?
6: Possibly my answer to that would really be I think they've done that. I think it's done. I don't think they can really go much longer. I think they've done a great job of accumulating over the last several years, and at some point, they've got to let it rise. So if you look at some of the great traders in history, Jesse Livermore or even the Rothschilds, they'll sell in very, very hard and with good volume into a market to determine what the bottom is. And once that's determined, they'll go the other way because they now know, they have assurance, they have a much less risk. And I think that's where we're at in the gold and silver markets. I really think they've been washed out. I think that uh, the bottom is in, as we said at the beginning of your show. So now is a time to continue to accumulate, and as the run continues, not add to it from their perspective, not from an investor's perspective. I'm looking at it from the, let's say, the manager's perspective. So when things start getting hot, they'll let it run. They'll just stay out and they'll let the public and the hedge funds and the money managers and the pension funds and everyone else in the market all of a sudden just take it up and up and up and up and up and they'll be on the sidelines. And then they'll wait to see exhaustion, which which if you have all the data, it's pretty easy to determine on a volume basis when the exhaustion takes place. And then they'll add to their short positions on the paper side and they'll see see the market sell off. But that will be a sell off from a higher point and the low will be a higher low, so it'll be back in a bull market. So you have higher highs and higher lows, and that's the way the market will move all the way up. And then all those swings, the banks or let's say the commercials from the commodities perspective will be on the correct side most of the time when that takes place, if not really all of the time. Regardless, it doesn't mean that they are controlling the market to go anywhere they want. I mean, I have friends out there who say, you know, they could put the price of silver at X at any minute they want. I disagree with that. The market forces certainly can be determined by their ability to maximize the amount of fiat that they have to move a market. There's no doubt about that. It's happening already in the S&P. I mean, uh, the Dow was off substantially, and so is the S&P. Then all of a sudden, the S&P comes up level. How did that happen? Well, it happens exactly, exactly how it happened in 1987 and after the working group on financial markets was brought into the fruition which says, How do we get out of this mess? And of course you had some pretty savvy financial guys, so it's very easy. You gotta use a lot of leverage and all you have to do is you gotta go into the futures markets and buy S and P futures and that will bring the market up. And of course it did it in nineteen eighty seven, it does it today. And so these are things that are blatant manipulation, absolutes. These are things that can be proven and yet most of us that are, let's say, on the professional side, understand it and know it takes place, but a lot of the public doesn't. And a lot of the public if they understood it would probably justify it. I'm not going to make a, it's a right or a wrong thing. I'm just going to say that this is what happens. And that was brought again to fruition because the powers that be, the Federal Reserve, the SEC, the head of the stock exchange, the head of the commodities exchange, the treasury, all these people at very, very high levels basically pulled their talents, if you want to call them together. They were able to help the market and this is something that you know no one wants a stock market crash so what do we do and so they have the authority to do that just look it up google working group on financial markets you know give yourself a 20-minute education on what that's all about
2: it's interesting because i'm kind of thinking a a number of things while you've been talking about this uh, that we may never see an actual stock market crash again because those forces are in play to to keep that from happening we may have even seen that during the last week and on the other hand unless you're a gold or silver bug and you're collecting physical gold and silver and there's often in that right now, what does it matter how much gold or silver, physical gold or silver is available if it's a paper market anyway? You can make up the numbers as you want.
6: Yeah, well, there's a lot of truth in that. The idea, though, is what's been proven. I'm not so much want to be on the uh, theoretical side of this, I want to be on the practical side of this. And that means there's only so much physical, regardless of how much paper, which is infinite. And so the market will distort. And we've already seen that happen a few times, where like in the even in the paper market, you see a distortion between like the spread between the S&P and the futures market and the actual S&P and the stock exchange. And when those distortions take place, then the arbiters come in. There's an arbitrage opportunity available because you're buying the same thing at different prices. So it'd be like being able to buy gold at $1,100 in one market and sell at $1,200 in the other market. And that arbitrage opportunity only is available for a short period of time because markets still are very efficient. So they will come together. The same thing happened in the physical system market in the 2008 crisis. So these things will take place, but I'm getting long-winded. What I want to be is succinct. All manipulations over time have failed. So whatever they're manipulating, be it the stock market or the gold market, these things cannot last and will not last forever, and I know people get tired of hearing that, but it's true. And the way to tell that it's happening is, again, what I just said, I'll repeat, that you'll see a larger and larger discrepancy that may not go away, where if you see like a spot price set by the LBMA recently that was like 80 cents under the spot silver price, Something's wrong and anyone awake sees that. And I did a quick update with Sean on SGT report about that and many others went in and talked about it as well. So these are the signs that things are breaking down, Ellis, so can they? Yeah, they'll do their best. And will they? Yes. But will they forever? No. It gets to be a point where the trust breaks down. And that's, again, where I want to come back to the dollar gold thing. I mean, everyone right now is pretty much trusting liquidity. What is real and what can I trust? And there's been a huge move into the bond market, which is a huge mistake. You couldn't be making a greater mistake than to get into more debt when debt's the problem. But if you're super liquid and you just want dollars very, very short term or just park it in the bank, then that makes most people feel real safe because they're not familiar with monetary history. They're not familiar with the fact that all fiats are corrupt and that they all fail. So they feel very safe that they've sold whatever their assets are and are in all cash. That gives them a very, very strong feeling that everything's going to be okay. So you can see cash move up or dollars move up substantially, especially the dollar index and gold moving up at the same time because the smartest money will be moving into the ultimate currency, which is gold or the ultimate money. I should say, gold, and everyone else is moving into the ultimate currency, which has been the U.S. dollar, although to me it looks like the dollar is starting to break down again. So that's the idea. Again, probably over-talked it, but I really want to stress that you have to be educated for yourself and determine you know, what happens at the end of these great things, these great inflations. What takes place? Do you go into deflation, and after you come out of deflation, what happens? What is taking place over the last decade? What's taken place since 2008? Have things really gotten better? Has there been more obfuscation of what's going on? Has the financial markets really healed? Does the stock market really project how good the economy is? Are there things in the gold market that just don't add up? What about what's going on in the silver market? Why is silver at a level that the miners cannot produce it for? I mean, these are questions people need to ask.
2: I imagine it's not any less expensive to mine for, to produce silver than it is gold really when you're talking about equipment
6: right I mean uh, to back you up maybe say it a little bit differently I mean, if you're going to move a a ton of rock, uh, it doesn't matter if there's lead in it, zinc in it, copper in it, gold in it, or silver in it. If you got, uh, for example, this is a hard rock mine, and you're moving a ton of rock, you're moving a ton of rock. So what you have to determine is, you know, how many dollars, quote unquote, are in that ton, and is it economic to move that ton of rock or isn't it? So yeah, you're right. I mean, the equipment and the costs. I mean, the rock doesn't care what's in it. The miner cares what's in it and cares the amount that's in it because if If it's not enough, they're not going to make a profit, and it's stupid for them to really participate in that market.
2: Now I know we're going to see you in Toronto for the, the PDAC, the Prospectors Developments Association of Canada. Why are you making the trip this time?
6: Well, always to keep in touch, you know, there's great networking you're always, you know, meeting new people getting that type of thing but uh, as you know we have a private company called Lumeria Royalties I can't say much on the radio but if you look up uh, com, there's information there for the general public and I'm meeting with right now and there's still more to come for and different prospects regarding that royalty-slash-streaming model that we've developed. So that's the main reason.
2: Thanks so much for joining us today on the program.
6: Well, so it's always a pleasure. Thank you. I've been chatting with analyst,
2: investor, and newsletter writer David Morgan. His website is themorganreport.com. Listen to this segment again on the homepage of our website, Ellismartreport.com and download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes and TuneIn Radio. Join me for a conversation with Eric Fear, President and CEO of Silvercrest Metals, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SIL. Silvercrest is a Canadian precious metals exploration company headquartered in Vancouver, BC. That's focused on new discoveries, value added acquisitions, and targeting production in Mexico's historic precious metals district, including three properties in prolific Sonora State. The company was formed following the acquisition of Silvercrest Mines by First Majestic Silver Corporation. Now, you've had success in the past along with your management team with a previous incarnation called Silvercrest Mines, and that company successfully sold to First Majestic Silver. You've been reborn as Silvercrest Metals under the symbol SIL with the same management team.
7: We're just trying to do it all over again. Same success, we had Silvercrest Mines or the old Silvercrest. Basically what we did with that company in 2006, we made a discovery in Mexico. We took that discovery into a major producer by 2012, 2013 it was done on a phased approach business model we started out small we generated cash flow and from that cash flow we grew that asset and it got to a point where silvercrest mines was a one asset wonder in the industry with a great reputation we felt it was time to take that one asset and do a deal with first majestic silver and the deal that was done was basically we became owners in a major silver producer of about 23 percent interest the silver crest mines or old Silvercrest shareholders got a big portion of that producer which has a good following and good respect in the industry. And along with that deal, we did a spinoff and this is the spinoff, Silvercrest Metals, or SIL on the market. Well, we brought in about $5 million in cash. We raised another $2.5 million, about $7.5 million in cash. So we are a cash rich Canadian junior explorer in Mexico. And we're looking at doing this all over again. It's a lot easier this time because we got money in the bank when we first created Silvercrest Mines in the mid-2000s, we had very little to no money and very little following. We're looking at just creating more shareholder value and doing it again.
2: And you intend on doing that with your flagship property, Las Chispas, also located in Sonora State, Mexico, not far, of course, from the Santa Elena mine, which you sold to First Majestic.
7: Part of the success formula all along that we've had now bringing that into Silvercrest Metals was to look at things that were simple. They're easy to get to. Good. Good infrastructure. We know the area. It's in the state of Sonora. Great access. One of the things that's important when you're trying to explore, develop, and produce, it helps a lot to be about in the same time zone. I can fly down to site the same day and make critical decisions. That's very important for executive management to have that kind of access. Las Chispas was carved out of the deal with First Majestic as a spin-off. It's located about 25 kilometers north of the success successful Santa Elena mine or about a 45 to 55 minute drive in the backyard of currently a producing mine. It's also located about the same distance from the Mercedes mine, which is a Yamana mine. That's one of Yamana's flagships and their only producer in Mexico. A great location and area to be exploring. We're looking at spending about $750,000 to a million dollars this year of our 7.5 million that's in the bank account for a discovery at Los Chispas. Los Chispas was a significant silver gold producer between 1880 and 1930. It produced down to the water table. There's approximately 20 epithermal veins. Only three of those have had any production. Their previous production was about 100 million ounces of silver and 200,000 ounces of gold. We do have direct access to a lot of underground workings right now with good values right at the face. We're just kicking off a rehabilitation program for the project. We're going to open those underground workings. There may be some high-grade material right out in front of us. When I talk high-grade, average grade of production was 1.7 kilos of silver per ton, and about 15 grams per ton gold.
2: With a share price of near 15 cents, it would be safe to say, potentially, that there's a lot of room for upside.
7: We're trading at below cash value right now, if you want to call that upside.
2: I've been speaking with Eric fear CEO and President of Silvercrest Metals. Silvercrest Metals trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SIL. Listen to this segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com.
1: You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. they paid us for the privilege. Invest at your own risk and only after doing extensive research. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com.